Endless Hustle presented by Doc Swinson's, the legendary whiskey blenders from Ferndale, Washington. I absolutely love Doc Swinson's, and if you haven't tried it, go to their website and check out their selection. I fought a good fight. I finished my football race. And after 18 years, it's time. Basketball players, we're really supposed to shut up and dribble, but I'm glad, I'm glad we do a little bit more than that. Eventually, every ball would go flat, but that doesn't mean that your life will flatline. What will you do when the game is over? All right, all right, all right. Episode 110 of Bro Bible's Endless Hustle. I am, of course, your host, Arthur Cade, and we are back with an incredible triple header. We're leading off this great episode with what I would call Olivia Munn's best performance ever. She's brilliant in her new movie, Violet. It is directed by Justine Bateman, of course, Justine Bateman, from Family Ties fame. It's her directorial debut. She does an incredible job with this movie, and Olivia crushes it. And I'm also chatting with her co-star, Luke Bracey, you guys are going to love this chat. We got into some really cool stuff. Then we're coming through with my quarterback. The only way I can call Eli Manning is a lifelong New York Giants fan. This guy brought me two Super Bowls. It's the first time I chatted with him. It was freaking awesome. So uh, Eli Manning, he has this new thing with IBM that you guys got to check out where he's playing fantasy football. It's like this, it's this assist thing. He'll talk all about it in the interview, but it is awesome. So for all of you fantasy footballers, Check out what Eli Manning has to say, because what he's doing with IBM is really, really cool. And then we're finishing up an incredible episode with San Diego Chargers great Mr. Lights Out himself, Sean Merriman. He just signed this great deal with Fubo TV for his Lights Out Extreme Fighting. It's awesome. So you guys got to check this out. I think you guys are going to love it. So great episode. Let's get right into it. We've got Olivia Munn, Justine Bateman, and Luke Bracey talking Violet. All right, guys, first of all, congratulations. I really dug this movie. As someone who has literally battled like depression and anxiety his whole life, Justine, I felt like you were literally making a movie about me. And I was like, fuck, this is absolutely crazy. So congratulations. Oh, thanks. I love Justin Thoreau narrating. And I was thinking to myself, man, if we all had someone to narrate our inner voice in our lives, who would it be? For me, it would be Paul Newman. So I want to ask, who would you want to be the narrator of your inner voice in your life? I think it's like two ways. Either you want someone that like sounds sounds really like cool and 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 kind of inspiring, or you could go with someone that makes you laugh and is like going to be entertaining throughout the day, and maybe is like you know someone who was like a great uh, like a, a Peter Ustinov who was a great raconteur. You know, it was just telling you funny stories all day. It'd be pretty awesome with a great baritone English voice. That'd be funny. Um, yeah, well, maybe like, I don't know, someone with, someone with maybe an Irish or a Scottish accent. They're so, they're inherently warm and loving and, 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 and funny. So maybe that'd be mine. Oh yeah. You think of every time you hear like Dame Judi Dench, like doing a voiceover to anything, I'm like, oh, what yeah. she's like, it's, it's pleasant. And also she's like, gets like straight to it. And like, she's like, doesn't bullshit. I feel like whatever the, like it would, if it could be Dame Judi Dench, her voice. Um, and if it also had the element of, you know, the, you know, those, those people, which I'm not like at all, where they're just like, they're so confident no matter what is thrown at them, no matter what happens, they're just like, I'm going to rise to the top. This is nothing. What I, I, I'm like, I have friends like that. And I'm always so fascinated by how people can 
can be that strong all of the time and be that self-confident. I wish I had more of that rolling through my brain. How about you, Justine? What do you mean the negative in our thoughts? No, just someone, it could be negative, it could be positive, but just that voice in your head, who is it? Who's the voice that you're hearing? Uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess if I, if, I, if there was a, a, a film of my life or something, which will never happen because I loathe <laughs> that, but um, uh, yeah, maybe Bill Murray, you know, <laughs> Olivia, when you're saying like somebody who always makes you laugh, and then I thought, you know, Sean Connery, Luke, is what, when you were talking, who I was yeah. for. I just, I just thought of maybe like David Attenborough. What a calming oh, and sure. like trusted influence. And like, you'd feel, you'd feel like you'd got all the information you needed yeah. from a situation and you'd trust it. <laughs> yeah. You're like, man, I'm not sure what to do here, but I feel smarter right after. I feel, I feel like I am all over the gestation period of this Atlantic salmon. <laughs> Luke, actually, as you were talking about someone funny, someone I hadn't thought of until you mentioned that was Ricky Gervais. I'm like, I'd love oh, to yeah. have Ricky just roasting me in my head and just making me fucking laugh nonstop. <laughs> That'd be good. Obviously, mental health right now, guys, is such an important conversation. And this movie just captures all the shit we think about and deal with and the decisions and micro decisions we have to make every moment of the day. And for me, anytime I start getting into that kind of state of mind, I've been taught by a, a very good friend. He always says lead with gratitude. So anytime I start feeling anxiety, I'll be, you know, I'm grateful for a ton of shit. Here's what I'm grateful for. And I remind myself and it gets me out of that state for each one of you. What are some of the tricks of the trade that you employ for yourself whenever you're feeling anxious or dealing with depression to knock you out of that state. I'll start with you, Justine. Well, it's really, I mean, the film is really more about the, the human experience than, I mean, to me, mental health is, I don't know, depression, bipolar situation, things like that. I mean, this is just like, this is really just rather about the human condition, which, which can involve those things for some people, but it's really just about like, are you making, or do you have a life that's based in, in fear? like making decisions like that, or is it a life based in instinct? And um, for me, uh, you know, a lot of what's in the film is things that I've found work. Like, you know, just if you think about, you know, those negative thoughts and just accept the fact that they're lies and that they're trying to take you off track, then you can do a safe bet is to do the opposite. If it's saying blah, 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 this horrible thing is gonna happen. Like Luke was saying, like, maybe, maybe not. And I found in my life, either one or two things happens, either that worst case scenario doesn't happen at all, or it does happen. And because it happens, this magnificent thing behind it is revealed that wouldn't have happened otherwise. So you're always trading up in every situation. But if I, if I, if I make a decision that's based in fear, I'm gonna have a bad, I'm definitely gonna have a bad outcome because I'm, I'm not being myself. So yeah, doing the opposite is, is one thing that definitely works for me. And also to try to get to the root fear, the irrational fear that's making me, causing me to be susceptible to this, um, this negative thought, you know, that's serving as an anchor. How about for you, Luke? What are some of the tricks of the trade to get yourself out of that mental state? Yeah, I, I, you know, maybe similar to yourself. Um, I like that term you use, lead with gratitude. I think that's a good one. It, it, it's perspective, isn't it? You know? When, when, when you're able to zoom out, try and see the forest from the trees and, and 
and try and place the um, the significance of, of of said issue that is that is worrying you in, in the grander scale of your day, your week, your life, your whatever. I think that can that can help me a lot. Is is trying to find perspective on it and and maybe trying to find where that fits in my life um, and does it fit on, on the hierarchy of what is truly important um, to me and, and 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 to my happiness where it ranks and I think that's a really good one for me is it's the kind of the perspective part of it um, but then as Justine said before it's funny you know if you are focusing on negative you guess what some negative stuff's going to happen yeah I remember when I was a young fella and I was um I was like playing playing rugby and we came up to our grand final this year. It was like under sixes, right? And we, we were playing this team that we'd played twice before in the season. We hadn't beaten them. We lost to them both times. So we wake up on I wake up on grand final day and dad goes, How do you reckon you my father says, How do you reckon you're gonna go? And I go, Oh, well we lost to him. I'm probably gonna lose. And he goes, Well, if you think like that, you definitely lose. And I thought, oh, right. And he goes, if you think you're going to win, you've got a chance. But if you think you're going to lose, there's no way you're going to win this game. So you want to, if you want to go to the grand final thinking you're going to lose, it's just kind of a waste of time, isn't it? So that's always stuck with me. And, um, and that's something that I try and live by where, yeah, if, if, if all you can see is the negative outcome of something, you are destined to, to go in that path. It's almost magnetic. Mm. Um, whereas, whereas, if you can be honest and, and see both sides of everything and, and, and try and aim towards the, the positive outcome, you will give yourself every chance to succeed and to have the positive outcome of this situation. Um, it's, it's magnets in that way, you know. Here's the million dollar question. Did you win or lose? We bloody won, mate. <laughs> I didn't lose. And I didn't, and, and me and my team, we didn't lose a game for another six years. Wow. We were undefeated oh. for six years. So, How bad would it have been if after you, all that, he's like, we ended up losing anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it hurts a lot. How about for you, Olivia? What do you do to get out of the state? Well, um, now I'm going to do what Luke's dad said. <laughs> Clearly it works. Yeah. Um, you know, I think what, what, I, what I actually um, have started doing um, was like making not just a gratitude list, which, you know, a lot of people do, but there, it's a list of things I'm grateful for. But then I also, on the next page, I write a list of the things that trigger me because I tend to live in a place of more fear and anxiety of like, oh, that trigger might come up. So I wanted to just face all of the triggers and write them down and be like, these are things. And it, sometimes they would scare me just even to write them down because that's how much of a trigger they were for me. And then on the next page, I would write down a list of things that I could do to tear down those triggers so that I'm already aware, I already have the mental ammunition to, to tackle those things when they hit. And so when they do hit, um, because it's inevitable, uh, I feel more prepared and I'm not as scared because um, I think that's what's, what I probably struggle with more because sometimes like you can be really grateful but when that fear kicks in, as we see with Violet and stuff, no matter how grateful you are or how great your life, you know, is appearing or how much success you're having, um, when something, when you get triggered by something, it's almost like, you don't. it doesn't matter. I know, I know I'm supposed to be grateful. I know I've got X, Y, and Z, but this feels so important right now. And so it was, a, it, that's a way for me to manage um, the negative and the positive and to not put too much weight onto that negative, like Luke was just saying. 
Justine, you'd mentioned fear versus instinct. What a great concept. And it really is what we grapple with with so many decisions in our lives. Is there one moment in your life that you can recount where you were deciding between fear versus instinct and you went with instinct and it yielded a positive result? Oh, lots of situations. Yeah. And I can also think of situations where, yeah, my worst case scenario came true. And and it didn't matter. Like, you know, the important thing was that I I tried it, you know, you know, kind of like what Lupus said, you know, being in a situation then losing and you're like, but I, I survived and I had a better, you know, experience doing it. But yeah, lots of times, lots of times. How about for you, Luke? Was there a moment where fear versus instinct, instinct won out? Yeah, um, I try in my life to follow instinct always. Um, I, I have made fear-based decisions and I've regretted them. And as Justine said, you know, sometimes the worst case scenario can happen, but you make it through it. And there's a lesson at the end of that. And so is it fear of not getting what you want? You know, because be careful what you wish for, because you might actually get it. Sometimes the best case scenario turns out to be the worst or what you perceive to be the best case scenario. Um, so yeah, I, I've, I've always tried to go on gut instinct for lack of a better term and, and, and trust that and try and try and grab as much information as I can to make an informed decision. But, but ultimately you still have to make a decision and, um, and trying to, trying to take the positive outlook for it and trying to take the, the, the whole gut feeling from it is, is, is kind of how I've got to where I am in my life in a, on a personal level, feeling, feeling, feeling comfortable in myself and, and, you know, obviously having bads like we all do, but, but yeah, no, really, I have made fear-based decisions and they've turned out to be not as fun as the instinct-based decisions. So you're always trying to, trying to play that game and, and, and just, there's a, there's a trust in self that is, that is difficult to find all the time and, and, and to know exactly what you want or exactly what you need. So I'm, I'm very conscious of my gut-based decisions. And, and yeah, I would say that that is, that is a determining factor in, in, in most, most decisions I make in my life in all aspects. About for you, Olivia, any moments for you? Yeah, I think I echo both of them when it's hard to pinpoint one. So, you know, you, there are, like, like Luke was saying, you realize when you make the fear-based decisions and then you make the instinct-based decisions, it's very clear that the instinct ones um, turn out better and they feel better and they're more fun. And um, the fear-based ones you end up regretting and, and sometimes you can regret for years and years to come. It, it, it costs you a lot more in the long run to make the fear-based decisions than it does to make you know the ones that are just by your gut. Um, so yeah, there are many, um, but it would be too hard to, to name one. Yeah, I think when you make like a fear-based decision and it goes wrong, it's it feels like it's been something external that's been put on you that even when you make an instinct-based decision and it goes wrong, I find a comfort in knowing that, well, at least it was my choice of doing that and trying to find that kind of positive energy in the, in the, in the negative outcome of it. At least you took control yourself and, and it went wrong, but you made that choice and, and, and that's a control. And that's what we're looking for in our lives, isn't it? Control of self, control of, 
emotion of, of action and 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 even if things go wrong that's not necessarily a bad thing mm-hmm. i love it congrats again guys totally dug the movie i hope a lot of people see it some cool shit great job justine thanks thank you appreciate so much. it your saturday have a good day All right, folks, that was Olivia Munn, Justine Bateman, and Luke Bracey. It is a fabulous movie. Olivia is getting a ton of praise for Violet, and she is brilliant in it. Personally, I mean, I've always loved Olivia Munn, but this is her best performance ever. You guys are going to love it. Next up, my quarterback. That's the only way to describe this dude. The guy literally brought me two Super Bowls. I said that earlier, but no, Eli Manning, outside of murdering somebody, I'm always going to love this guy. He's my quarterback, so... You guys are going to love this chat. It was awesome. And he's red hot right now with the Manning cast. If you aren't watching the Manning cast on Monday Night Football, what are you doing? Here he is, Eli Manning. All right. We got a great day on the Endless Hustle because as a lifelong Giants fan, I've got my quarterback joining me today, a man who brought me tremendous amount of joy, especially with those incredible two Super Bowl wins, Mr. Eli Manning. Eli, great to have you on the show, my man. Thanks a lot, Arthur. Thanks for having me on. So you're a fantasy football player now. Amongst the 800 other things you're doing, you're not playing fantasy football. Tell me all about this. Yeah, so uh, you know, last year was my first year playing fantasy football. Um, I did not do all that well um, just because I drafted a lot of my friends. I drafted guys who I played against and just thought that was kind of how it worked with fantasy football. You just, uh, you know, I thought, hey, I've played this game long enough. I know which guys are good or going to have good seasons, but um, I did not strategize very well. And so I've learned now that, uh, you know, using uh, IBM Watson is kind of the way to go, whether it's uh, with the boom bust that kind of just set my, 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 my team every week and really, uh, with the the trade assistant with IBM Watson uh, to kind of find out the fairness and the value of trades. Uh, they have trade packages where you can look at players to watch. It can tell you what players not to trade. It can tell you what players to trade, or you can kind of look at positions and see where you can make an upgrade uh, on certain things. So it's been very helpful. Uh, I used it a bunch this past week as uh, my quarterback, um, you know, Justin Herbert, plays for the Chargers. Mike Williams, Keenan Allen, all with the Chargers on a bye week. CeeDee Lamb was on a bye week. Michael Thomas is the guy I drafted, thinking he'd be back by now. It was not, so I was short a receiver. I was sending out trade uh, proposals left and right. Watson was like, do not make that trade. That is a bad idea. Like, you were going to get, you know, um, you know be in a very much disadvantage and going to lose off on this trade. But I had to do it because I was short a receiver uh, in my line, in my starting lineup. I did not have a, a spot. But um, so I just I rely on on the A.I. Uh, it, you know, Watson is much smarter than I am, has more information. And so it's given me the ability to, to win some games uh, this season. Listening to you break that down almost made me imagine the way you were in the film room when you were actually playing. You were literally like in analysis mode. Does your mentality as an NFL quarterback and how much preparation and study you had to put into every aspect of what you did, does it translate to the post-retirement part of the Eli Manning existence? (laughs) I think it does. Just so you're so used to talking you know, it's feel like I'm, I'm, I'm teaching, I need to teach you something. Or I need to teach people like how to use this and the importance of it. It's, it's like, you know, going over a, a play and I'm like, Hey, 
you got to get eight yards on this hook route because that end cut is coming up 14 yards. You got to grab that will linebacker and we'll open up the end cut. So you got to kind of explain, you know, what your role is, why it's good, how it's going to help you and help the team. Um, and so I think that's, you know, you're, you're so used to doing that talking ball, talking X's and O's that when it comes to explaining anything, I feel like I'm, I am back in the meeting room. I'm with the receiver. I'm explaining a protection to the offensive line and to the running backs to how we're going to pick this up and solve a solution. So last night I was at a New Jersey Devils game and I absolutely love that franchise. I love that fan base. I know that they had sent you a Jersey as well, which was really cool because I know you tweeted that as a player, because there's so much overlap between your fan base with the giants and obviously their fan base as a player, how much did that fan base and that area elevate you? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I think the fans make a huge impact uh, on the game. That's why I can't even imagine last year uh, playing in, in a professional football game where there's no fans in the stadiums. I, 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 didn't, I don't even want to know what that felt like or it just feels so odd. But I think having fans, um, you know, feeling their energy, feeling their passion uh, helps you. And I think there's no more you know, passionate football fans in all sports, really, uh, than in New York and New Jersey. I mean, uh, I think the fans are not only, you know, they love their teams, uh, but they're very knowledgeable about the games and uh, whether it's hockey, baseball, football, basketball. I mean, they really look into it. They study it. They know the players. I mean, they are involved and they are, um, you know, and I think it's, it, it makes a huge impact. You want to win for those guys and you want the crowd cheering. You want to feel the energy. You want to get them rocking in the fourth quarter, and, you know, um, and, and get the place uh, jumping up and down and loud and, and creating that great atmosphere uh, that you, you know, you, you know, that you, you played in before. So um, I think it does ha have a great impact on the players. I mean, just being at Prudential Center last night, which is right down the street from where you used to play, the energy in that arena blew me away. And as a kid from Philly originally, you could just, the energy was even more substantial to me there than it even was sometimes in Philadelphia. I was just absolutely blown away. That's awesome. Yeah. The, you know, the, when you get a, when you get a rocking stadium, uh, there, there's no better feelings, you know, from, from the offensive standpoint, we're always like, Hey, quiet down, quiet down. So like after the touchdown celebrate, but you know, we're always on the sideline when the defense is out there and it's, you know, late in the game and you want to get it, you know, pumped up. I mean, you're, you're raising it. You're trying to tell the, you know, the crowd to get loud, get fired up for those third down uh, plays. And, and like you said, you know, I've been, been to some hockey games and, you know, there when you get when you get it rocking, there's no there's no like up and down. It's just going full throttle all the time. And it, it's a it's an awesome atmosphere. So they've got this young superstar, Jack Hughes. He has a lot in common with you because both of you were number one draft picks. And I can only imagine in the New York, New Jersey area, being a number one pick and becoming the face of the franchise, the pressure and the expectations that have to go with that. If you were to give Jack advice on how to build a successful career on and off the ice, because you did a great job with it. What would that advice look like? You know, I think it's the same for, for really any player. I think always, you know, keep great mentors in your life. And those uh, are, are your coaches in, in a lot of uh, instances where you're always, always uh, have the desire uh, and the need to be coached, want to be coached, never think you're above it or you don't need it, you know, there's always something you can improve on, someone to watch things and give you guidance on what you can 
uh, how you can get better. I think you rely also, you know, on your teammates, um, you know, for guidance and for, um, you know, just the support uh, during the ups and the downs. Don't, don't listen to the, you know, to the, to the sports talk radio shows. Don't, you know, read the papers to find out how you're playing, whether it's a bad game or a good guy, good game. You listen to your coaches, you listen to your teammates and, and you kind of keep your circle of, of people uh, that, that help you during the ups and downs uh, very tight. And so, um, you know, don't, it's not about having people that are telling you, you know, what you, what you want to hear. It's telling, you know, having people in your life that are, are honest with you and tell you what you need to hear um, to, to raise your level of play. Another thing he has in common with you is he has brothers in the league playing as well. And it got me thinking when you have someone, whether it's a big brother or little brother who can go through the same experience that you're going through and someone you can lean on, you obviously had Peyton during that time. How does that benefit you? How does it help to have a brother in the league with you? You know, I think it's extremely beneficial just because you have someone, uh, you know, you can vent to at times. And, you know, if I talk to, you know, one of my best friends from growing up who, you know, who, you know, I played high school football with and nothing else. They just can't relate. They don't know what it's like to be in a, in a, in a huddle. They don't know what it's like to, you know, be, uh, you know, at the line of scrimmage and see a will free safety blitz. And we had, you know, a double seam on and, and I had to, you know, make a red Mickey call to get it picked up. Like you know, I'm talking a different language to that person, but when you have a brother uh, who's been in that, we, and we actually played in the same college offense so we can, kind of talk that offense and, and, and related in that sense and that language. So uh, to have someone who's just been in those situations that you can talk to about uh, is so beneficial. I think it also helps in your preparation when you're playing similar teams and you get to talk about what they did, where their weaknesses are, how you picked up certain blitzes. And so we always, uh, always communicated, always talked um, and just having that support. And, you know, it wasn't always football, but a lot of it was football and, all, and also just, kind of getting a daily routine about how you prepare and, and get ready to play each game. I saw you tweeted a picture of your son in the devil's Jersey and he's becoming a hockey player. So you are quote unquote, officially a hockey dad. What is it like being a hockey dad and the appreciation that you're getting to see your son in sports, playing this wonderful sport and living vicariously through him? <laughs> you know, it's fun. So actually my uh, so my son is only two and a half years old, so you know he might start getting on the skates this year. He does wear the jersey. He loves his hockey jersey, uh, and and rarely takes it off. Uh, but my it's actually my youngest daughter who was five last year. Uh, she is my hockey player. She uh, she got into it last year. She always skated, but uh, with the pandemic, they they kind of cut out a lot of her other sports, basketball and and soccer and different things going on. So I said, hey you're playing hockey. And, uh, and she absolutely loved it. After the first practice, she was, she was sold and, you know, just all the pads now falling, didn't hurt. They were the sliding, you know, so she's, you know, it's, it's new, brand new for me. I know nothing about it. I've never been on skates before in my life. Um, and so I don't, I, did, I barely know the rules of hockey and definitely don't know all the, the language, but uh, I am learning. I love watching her play. And so we'll see, see where it goes, but I'm sure, my little boy just, you know, going to hockey practices and taking him, getting him on skates, you know, it, it'll be a sport that he will pick up and I'll, I'll, I'll promote it and, and hope that he does start to play. 
you were Mr. Durability during your career. When you see what those guys, and now there's so many girls playing hockey, like your daughter, how tough they are and how tough the sport is. What kind of respect do you have for hockey players? Yeah, an un- unbelievable respect. Um, and, and as I've gotten, you know, been up here uh, in the Northeast for a while, started, you know, I grew up in New Orleans, not a whole lot of hockey going on, didn't have teams. So uh, I've started to watch, you know, watch the, the local hockey teams and just the amount of uh, conditioning they do, the, how fast they play, the hits that they that they take in the fights. You know, it's just a, uh, it's such a uh, uh, awesome game, high energy, high impact. And so it's been a lot of fun to, to, to watch it and, um, you know, been around some guys uh, and, and starting to, you know, who, who know the game, getting asked them questions and kind of understand how the substitutions work and what some of the philosophies going on are in the game. has been a lot of fun for me. The Manning cast has become a phenomenon. In fact, you're what I watch Monday nights now. You and your brother is must-see television. It was all over my Instagram Having Brady on this week and just seeing the three of you and that chemistry and the respect, I, what's been the reaction? Like, can you believe how much people have really fallen in love with you and your with, with what you and your brother are doing with this program? You know, yeah, I didn't know what the what the reaction would be just because um, you know it was such a, a different idea and a di- totally a, such a uh foreign way to watch a football game it's like why why you know like why would i want to watch these two guys watching the game and they're having guests and they don't talk about every play that you know they don't even know every player i don't think by their first name and so um you know so but I, i know i've enjoyed it i've enjoyed you know being there with my brother us taking shots back at each other uh we've had some unbelievable guests like you said with tom brady and gronk and um, you know, Marshawn Lynch, Drew Brees, Sue Bird last week. And so have have all those uh, people on and get to talk about, you know, summer fans, get to analyze the football, talk about plays and just, uh, you know, go through the circumstances of the game. So I think it's been, you know, an interesting way. I think it's, you know, a lot of it for those fans that, that don't really have, um, you know, they're not rooting for their team. You know, if they're not, you know, if their if their favorite team is not playing, I think it's a great way to watch. It. Kind of, hey, I'm just casually watching this game, and here's some here's some inside scoop on what's going on. But also, um, you know, here's some stories, here's some interviews, and, and you know, have some fun and just a, a totally different approach to watching uh, Monday Night Football. Yeah, one of the coolest things is athletes are so segregated. I mean, we are now in an age with social media where we do get to know you guys so much more. And whether it's the podcasts or whatever, there's more accessibility. But even with that, there is a distance. And to see you and your brother, two iconic athletes, just be dudes, right? Like there's cursing, there's fucking weird moments, there's off the cuff dancing. It it just creates a likability there. Now that you're not playing, how refreshing is it to be able, because you do it on Twitter too, and you're awesome on Twitter. How refreshing is it to be able to showcase those different ends of your personality where you may have had to like regress those because you were a player and you were protecting a team's branding? Right. Yeah, no, it's definitely different. And it's a different, um, you know, it's a different attitude when you're, when you're not playing just because, um, you know, I think when I was playing, I didn't want any, I, I think I wanted my fans to only think I just, I played football and everything, football, football, football. And that's all I care about. That's all I had. That was my only interest. And, and for, for some case that, that was somewhat true, but I did have a life. I had a family. I did do fun things and, and had a, you know, a different personality, but didn't always show it, um, 
just because you had to guard it a little bit, you know, uh, with everything going on, didn't want to be a distraction and take anything away from the team. But now, um, you know, kind of nothing, nothing to hide, nothing to lose, no, no, no team distraction. So, um, you know, I can show my support uh, for the Giants and for Ole Miss and, and the teams that I love, but also get, get to show a lighter side and, and kind of make some, you know, be, be silly a little bit and, and, and have some fun with it. Booking these guests, I'm like blown away. I mean, we, I was joking around. I book for a living for my show and for other shows. And I'm just like, holy shit, the people they're getting. I'm sure, listen, you can probably text Tom Brady. I'm sure there's a friendship there. But how do you kind of ascertain who you're going to have on the show and who you think is going to be a fit? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is, you know, personal relationships with, with guys and, you know, whether it's guys you've you've played against, you've seen in the off season, you've done commercials with, you've, uh, you know, done charity events with, or just, you know, people that you, you, you've met over the years. And, um, you know, you just, you know, some, some you ask and they're, they'd love to come on and, and, you know, you play, well, which, you know, you kind of send them some weeks, Hey, which game would you like to come on? Hey, I'm a big, you know, Seahawks fan. Oh, great, Sue. You know, we, you know, Sue Bird, we're, we're playing Seahawks are playing this week. Would you come on that week? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'd love to. And so I think it's, uh, you know, I think, you know, for the most part, people have seen it now a few times. I understand that it's, this is not serious. I mean, it, it, you know, we're not asking you to, you know, a, a serious question uh, that, you know, we're not trying to trick you. We're not trying to uh, get some, you know, um, in-depth answer. It is, hey, we're watching football. Uh, we may interrupt you to talk about a certain play or teach you something that's going on if you don't know about it, but we're analyzing the game. And, you know, um, and I think it's always more fun when you when you do have a, uh, a connection with the person or, or pre-existing relationship where you can, you know, take some shots at them and know they're not going to get sensitive and vice versa. You always seem so calm. And I remember those two Super Bowl runs, which for both me and my producer, Joe, who are on, we're both just lifelong Giants fans and how much joy it brought us. But your mindset, even as calm as you appeared, the day of the Super Bowl, you're about to run out on the field. Were you shitting bricks? I mean, were you like, oh, my God, or or were you always that calm? What was how were you able to handle that type of pressure in that type of moment? Well, I think it's the I think it's just the preparation and and that the fact that you you know you practice all week, you work your whole life, you you've played in so many games, and you know that that week uh, just the the, the film, um, you know the talking, going over plays, going over strategy, where you just feel so prepared that now when you get to game day, um, you just you just let all the work kind of go to work, and and, and you know you're not going to overthink things and. Um, you know, just take it from the practice field to the game field. And so I think that's that's the mindset. And when you get into a, a two minute drive uh, to go, you know, to go, you know, win a football game, you're not nervous about that situation. You're excited. That's what you prepared for. That's what you work for. That's what as a kid. That's what you imagine. Hey, there's a minute 50 and we have a timeout and we're down four. We got to go score a touchdown to to win a Super Bowl. Those are the, the moments that you have in your mind. And, and then you know, that week you prepare for those, you study, Hey, what do they do in a two minute drive? What are our favorite plays? Hey, this is what we want to run. So you have an idea. Uh, hey, if they come with blitz, we're going to check to this. So it's all preparation. You, you, you know what you have to do. And then there's always um, going to be some improv and things don't go exactly how they, how you anticipated. And that's just when you be an athlete and you back to backyard football and, and find a way. 
So I love Tony Romo as a broadcaster. And obviously he's now become famous for essentially predicting all these plays. And any NFL player I've talked to says the same thing. You're so ingrained in it that anyone who's watching football on TV can pretty much do the same thing. It's just robotic at this point because you've lived and breathed it for now decades. When you're watching football today with the offenses as sophisticated as they are, are you able to essentially predict it? Like, can you pretty much tell what they're doing just like Romo can? Well, you know, I, I think you can, uh, I think some it is that you can, you know, you, you understand you've watched film. So you, you know, their tendencies and you know what they like to do in certain situations. And so, you know, Hey, when the tight end is split out wide and they get man, they're, they're working him, whether if it's zone, they're going to work to the field. So when you can see that in the booth and see the big picture, you have a tendency to know where they might be going with it. And I think just having played the game so long, um, and, and play it against these style of defenses. Hey, you can see the defense is playing cover two. Um, and, you know, you know where you would want to work, where, you know, where you'd want to get the ball to in the middle of the field somewhere. And so I think you're just, um, you know, it's kind of how you watch film and you say, hey, they play a lot of this. We, these plays would work. And so you can hopefully have an idea of what you would do, what you would call, what you'd want in those situations. And so you, you feel like you have a better chance of kind of anticipating what might happen. How much satisfaction did you get seeing your brother wear the Ole Miss jersey in front of millions <laughs> of people? How wonderful feeling was that? It was a very wonderful feeling. Uh, you know, so 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 uh, obviously happy that Ole Miss won and beat Tennessee, or I didn't have to wear an orange jersey for an hour and a half of my life. Uh, that would have been pretty painful. And so, you know, obviously, uh, you know, Peyton was a good sport about it. Wore it the whole first half and. And uh, uh, so that was that was great. That was a lot of fun. Um, and, you know, he's uh, he's a man of his word and and paid up, uh, paid on his bets. Obviously, your younger brother has become the talk of the town, being recruited by everybody. Now social media, because he's a Manning, explodes it even more. Seeing the journey he's going through and you were once in those shoes, as was your brother. What are kind of the differences between what you see with his generation versus what you went through and what Peyton went through. Yeah. So this is, you know, my, my nephew, Arch, um, I'm sorry, is, your nephew, Arch, right. Yeah. So, it, you know, I'm excited for him, but, you know, and, and obviously there's uh, unfair expectations of what he's going through because uh, of who his uncles are. But, uh, you know, as I've told, I've told him, I said, Hey, just, just enjoy being a junior in high school. Enjoy. This, this is a great time in your life. You are with your best friends and guys, you've played pickup football with and um you know so don't don't kind of overlook this time in your life don't get so caught up in where you might go play college or have these dreams of playing in the nfl all those things like hey have your dreams about winning a high school state championship that that should be your goal being a great teammate finding ways to get better to improve to win to win this upcoming game so keep keep your goals um, you know, very kind of, you know, not, not too far down the line to enjoy this experience, enjoy being in high school with these guys, because you, you don't get these times back and it is a great uh, opportunity. So, um, you know, just, just, just live it and, you know, you'll figure out, you'll, you'll know the right decisions. Your, your heart will tell you where the right place will be to go to college. So don't, don't overthink those things right now. Growing up in Philly and being a Giants fan was not easy, as you can imagine. And I just think to myself, as much shit as I got from friends and family and everybody else, I can't even imagine the shit you got coming into Philly. 
were they the toughest fan base on you or was there a tougher fan base when you would come into town? No, they were, they were the toughest. Just, uh, you know, they would, they would say some things. I, I, I got in a little trouble uh, a few weeks ago on Monday Night Football for kind of showing, you know, showing uh, the world the greeting that a lot of Philly fans uh, used to, uh, when I walked out the tunnel. I, th- I just thought that's how they said hello. I didn't know that was, uh, uh, that was a bad thing. That's just kind of how, how every, every fan, no matter of age, said hello to me. And so they are – they're just they're ruthless and it's not just the uh you know not just the grown men it's the boys it's every everybody every every philly fan has the same mindset and so they they're going to attack the opponent but um you know that's that's what makes it you know that's what makes football fun each stadium is different the fans are different and the atmosphere is different the environment so going into these rough environments um and, and getting a win are exciting moments. And so you, you remember those times. Once a giant, always a giant, Eli Manning. As you say on your Twitter, this has been a blast, brother. You gave me a lot of years of joy. Congratulations on all the things you're doing. Working with IBM on the fantasy football stuff, it's been a blast to chat with you, man. Hey, thanks a lot. That was a lot of fun. Thanks, brother. Take care. Bye. All right, folks, that was, of course, Eli Manning. Make sure to check out, as he had explained, this new fantasy football partnership with IBM. And, of course, Monday Night Football. Eli's just crushing it. He's all over the place now. The guy's guy's literally everywhere now. Good for Eli Manning. All right, we're finishing it up with Sean Merriman and talking all about UFC and MMA and his great career. This dude was such a beast back in the day, and I love seeing what he's doing with MMA right now. So let's just get into it. Here he is, Sean Merriman. All right, we've got a lights out day on the Endless Hustle as I'm joined by the one, the only, one of the hardest hitting linebackers I've seen during my lifetime, the one and only Sean Harriman. Dude, congratulations. I had no idea that you were an MMA nut and now you've started this incredible league lights out to help fighters make it to the big time. How did this all begin for you? You know, it's funny. Um, I started training myself back in 2006. Um, I grew up in uh, Prince George's County, Maryland, in Washington, D.C. area. But boxing, boxing was big where I was from, but MMA wasn't. And I get drafted by the Chargers. And this is when, like, in 2005, MMA started to come on. And uh, I remember Jay Glazer, my friend over there at Fox Sports, he said, you know what, let's um, try to work and see if we can get better with your hand-eye coordination and, you know, using your hands more as an outside linebacker by training MMA. I walked in the gym one, the very next day I went in and Jay Glaze is on the right, Randy Couture is on the left. So I'm thinking in my head, like, hold on, I'm not sparring, I'm not fighting Randy Couture today. Am I like, what's going on? Uh, but, you know, I just kind of picked up the sport, man, was grappling every offseason, doing a little bit, you know, more in the stand up and ground game. And, you know, I just fell into it. And in uh, 2018, we launched Lights Out Extreme Fighting, uh, now on Fubo Sports. So 2006, go back to that era because that was, the explosion of the UFC. Obviously, we now have seen that the UFC has become a major sport all in itself. But in 2006, when you're looking around and you're seeing what's happening with the UFC and people like Randy Couture are megastars at that point, what are your thoughts about where where combat sports was heading? I I thought it was, I always felt it was big, right? Because being in Southern California, playing with with the Chargers in San Diego, a lot of the guys will come to the games, you know, the Chuck Liddell's, the Randy Couture's, Tito Ortiz. We, I mean, 
Forrest, all the big guys, they would come to the Chargers games all the time. So I kind of, I was around them a lot. So you, you felt like the stardom of, you know, that at that time, I, mean, Chuck, I don't think there was anybody bigger than Chuck Liddell, you know, name wise, Chuck can go anywhere and it was just like crazy. And um, so I just, you know, fell in love with the sport because I just saw it growing. I knew how big it was going to be. Um, I didn't know that it was going to get to this main, mainstream, but the truth of the matter is it's not even as big as it's going to get. It's only going to get bigger from now. So when you first start meeting those guys, I've had Liddell on the show. I've had Glazer on the show. I've had so many of the biggest stars in UFC on the show, and I have such an immense respect for them. As you start meeting these guys and as you start working out with Glazer and get an appreciation for just how hard what it is these guys and now girls are doing, I mean, how crazy was this all? It, it was probably the most humbling thing that I've ever done in my life, you know, because you come in there. You know you're stronger than everybody. I mean, hell, when I went to go do grapple with Randy Couture, I probably had him by 60 pounds or close to it, and he was just tossing me around. And I, it, for me, that intrigued me because I'm an athlete and, I, and I'm competitive. I'm like, what in the hell is he doing right and what am I doing wrong? So every day I just find myself learning a little bit more, picking a little bit more up, uh, a better discipline. And there's no day you can go in there that you figured everything out, that you mastered everything. There's not one single day that somebody in there can't kick your ass. And uh, with that part of it, I just, I fell in love with it. What were some of your biggest learnings? So as you're getting started, you mentioned you have a size differential on Randy Couture. You would think, oh man, I'm going to absolutely crush this guy. He's throwing you around. What were some of the biggest learnings that you were discovering as that was happening? Um, a couple of times, you know, even some of the smaller guys that wrestled in college and they, you know, had a jujitsu background. You know, some of these guys were 185 pounds and they would some, get me on the ground sometimes and I couldn't get up. I mean, that that was probably the the most, but I, I just couldn't figure it out. I couldn't, it's probably, you know, six, seven years ago, but still it was like, I know I should be able to get up. I'm strong as hell. You know, I got a whatever bench press, whatever squat, you should be able to get up, right? But just so many of these guys were so tech, technical sound and been doing it for so long that it just intrigued me more to learn. Like, and after every, every day, I would, you know, kind of always, I was humbled anyway, but you ask them like, man, what, you know, what did you do? How, how did you get me like this? And how do, how do I get up from here once you do this, right? And there's a new wrinkle that you're learning every day. And if, if that don't fire you up to kind of just want to be around the sport, man, I don't know what's wrong with you. Some of the greats in the sport, people like Conor McGregor, Kamara Usman, they were able to work their way up through almost let's call them starter leagues, like the ultimate fighter. How important are leagues like that, organizations, things like Lights Out to be able to spotlight fighters who are just coming into the sport who need that light? It's very important. I mean, you know, uh, playing in the NFL for so long and you realize how big the NFL is and, and on this side, you know, it's UFC in, in this space. They are, they are the mega monster. And, you know, a lot of guys, a lot of fighters, men and women, want the opportunity to go and fight there uh we we know and understand that we don't really have a problem with that of course we want to be a main league but let's not kid yourself i mean guys are coming to fight to have a better opportunity and be, me being a former athlete i understand that it's like hey you know guys why did i leave my three years in college i went pro early why did i go pro so i can make money right so you got an opportunity to play on that level you go play so what do you think about when you look around the UFC today? We have so many incredible superstars. Obviously, Connor is at the top of the mountain at the moment. But then you have Dustin Poirier, who just got announced for his next fight. What do you think about the stable of fighters right now? Who are some of your favorites? Who are some of the ones you respect the most? 
Um, you know, Dustin, I mean, for sure, that, that last fight, even, even before, you know, Connor hurt his leg or whatnot, um, he looked he looked really good. I mean, he looked strong. Um, Usman right now, I think Usman's just on a hot streak. Um, I, lo- I love Kane, man, and, and you know, I, I, I love him in the heavyweight division. Um, he's, he's a guy that doesn't fight. You know, he doesn't move as big as, as he looks. I think he's, what, 250-something plus pounds, and he moves like a guy that's 205. Um, you know, Francis, uh, I know he, he's kind of getting thrown back in the ringer again, right? He's not getting a whole lot of time off. So there's been some, a little bit of problems with that, man. But I see him training, you know, a lot, a lot over here in the gym and extreme couture. So, you know, just me for one, being able to go and train with these guys, cause I like to stay in it and stay in shape. And it's a, a form of discipline for me. Um, you know, I started to see guys and this, this is a different kind of space over here. These guys are, are trained assassins, man. You got to watch out. There's always talk about crossover in sports. The, the one that's always getting thrown around is could LeBron actually make it in the NFL? When the UFC do you think could translate their skill set to actually play in the NFL? Um, Francis, I think, will be one. Uh, if you look at him, see how he's built. He has like that, those the big legs and ass like a football player, right? He, you know, he's not like a a, a thin hamstring, a thin quad guy. No, he got he has legs. Now, I, I would I would line him up. At, at linebacker or like D tackle or D or something like that and, and, and make him play the hell out of the run. Um, you know, John Jones, I think would have been a really good D end and if you or tight end, if he ever decided to come over and cross that space, obviously his brothers do, uh, you know, play um, who else, who else? Um, I'm, I'm I feel like Izzy. I feel like Izzy Adesanya could I, I actually. Was, do I was going to say Izzy, you can maybe put him at the slide or some kind of wide receiver or something like that. Uh, super athletic. Um, he's very long too. It's, it, you know, he's, he got, you got to watch out for those guys. I played with a few guys that are real, they come across at the little guys, the skinny guys, and actually are the worst ones uh, because they just have no body fat, man. And everything they do, you feel everything. They, he's almost built like uh, Antonio Cromartie, who I used to play with uh, to play cornerback. I would, I would compare Izzy to, to that kind of body frame. Um, yeah, it, it's, I always look, man, and vice versa. I look at these, some of these NFL guys. I'm like, man, what if, what a guy like Khalil Mack, if he ever decided to take up, take it serious and learn, you know, jujitsu and get better and actually go take a fight, man, this dude probably hurt somebody, you know, Khalil Mack or uh, Aaron Donald, one of these guys, if they got serious, man, they can do some damage over here. I was talking to Glazer about him training NFL players and athletes all over the spectrum and how getting them into MMA essentially elevated their skill set in whatever sport that they were professionals in. How did it change your skill set when you were still in the NFL? I think the biggest thing that I did was my leverage. I got a lot better on my leverage. You know, you're, you're playing against guys. Uh, and we talked about Randy Gator when we were starting to pummel and I just couldn't figure out why he was able to move my body the way that I did. And his just leverage was next level. And so I think the first thing that changed with me is my leverage and being able to open my hips uh, when I'm in the pass rushing position against those 330 uh, 30 or 50 pound linemen. That was the first thing I noticed. The second part is my hands, man. I mean, I, I was reacting, learn how to grab guys' wrists, um, use my leverage and balance when I opened my hips and turn a corner and I wasn't falling as much. Um, and I got really violent, man. My hands, my hands, I got so violent with them and only because I was just so used to use them in different grappling situations and, and not letting guys, you know, get advantage or get you in certain positions. Uh, and then finally, my endurance. I think my endurance went through the roof because there's nothing like you doing, you know, three, five minute rounds or 
four or five minute rounds, if you're nonstop and some guys on top of you, you got to figure out a way not to panic, not to overexert your energy and just kind of breathe, man, and breathe on through where you're not panicking so much and, and being out of breath. So those three things, I think, really ele elevated my football game big time. Who's your all-time favorite UFC fighter? Um, I, I would probably say John Jones or Chuck Liddell. Um, you know, just, you know, Ch John Jones, because he's the, to me, he, he's the greatest MMA fighter ever, you know, regardless of all the other stuff that he's kind of got into. Uh, and Chuck Liddell, I think that, you know, and probably because I was out with Chuck at his peak that he, because of the Mohawk and the way his appearance, like if you've seen Chuck Liddell in a room, people will like gravitate, you know, they were running over there because um, he just had a, a certain look about him that um, you can tell no matter which country you were in, no matter where you were at, he, it was no way of coming in hiding. If you saw Chuck Liddell, like you knew exactly who he was. That's a, that's a, those are two pretty, pretty solid choices, by the way. Yeah, so no, they sure. just, I mean, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm friends with a bunch of guys. I know, I know a ton of guys, but, you know, like if you take everybody at the peak of their career, and I'm not talking about the Conor McGregor's and, and Khabib's and stuff now. I'm just talking about when you start thinking about um, who revolutionized the, the MMA space as far as becoming iconic first. Um, you know, obviously Conor's there and some, a couple other guys there now, but first the person that comes to my mind was is probably Chuck. All right, so they just recently asked Poirier for his Mount Rushmore of MMA UFC fighters. He had GSP, Khabib, Fedor, and John Jones on there. Who's your Mount Rushmore of all-time UFC guys? I would start with John Jones in, in, in any order or just, you know, just the four? Any order. Pick your four, your Mount Rushmore. Uh, yeah, John, four faces go, on the mountain. I will go John Jones. Um, I will go to... Uh, yeah, GSP is a good one. I can't, uh, I can't go Khabib yet, and the only reason is because I don't, I don't think Khabib is done. I mean, I know he's saying he's retired, but I just, I don't think he's done. So I don't want to put him up there. I think there are other guys that are pretty much done. I don't know if John's going, what else going to happen. Um, who else? Who else did he put up there? He put. Um, I would, yeah. I, I would, you Go gotta, ahead. you gotta put like a, a Randy Couture up there too, I think at maybe at, at some point and um, God, maybe, I don't know. I can't go Chuck, but Chuck is iconic, but I, it, that, that, the fourth one is hard. I guess you can go Khabib, but it's, it's hard for me to go with Khabib because I just don't, I, I just don't believe he's done. I'll throw one name that people seem to have forgotten, but he's arguably the goat Anderson Silva. Yeah, Anderson, Anderson, left. but in two. So when you're talking about uh, talking about iconic people, and because I you know played in NFL, I grew up playing uh, you know football and basketball, and whatnot. When I when I look at somebody that's iconic, they know who they are, and they don't even watch the sport, right? Like you, if you know who Chuck Liddell is, you know who John Jones is, you know, you know uh, Anderson Silva, man, he was just he was so big at his time uh, that yeah, he's a, he's another one, another iconic one. And, I, you know, the reason why I think that, for one, people aren't, including myself just now, of why people are not putting them up there is probably because this last, you know, several fights or whatnot. And that's why I always kind of had a, a little bit of a problem with guys fighting longer than they should, um, because they, you once you do it at a high level, and I've, been, and, I'm, and I've been there where I played at my peak and I had some injuries and I kind of just hobbled through a couple of years at the end of my career. 
And so sometimes that you, you leave people with that and not what you've done over your body of work. All right. So I want to switch gears to your career because I remember your career very vividly. I mean, you were an absolute monster during your day. Let's take it back all the way to high school. You're a standout high school athlete. You're getting recruited by pretty much everybody. You decide to stay in state and you go to Maryland. Walk me through recruiting at that time. What was it like? Give me some great recruiting stories. Was it as much fun as I hope it was? You know, it's funny. I never went on one recruit, one recruiting visit. I never went. I committed to the University of Maryland my junior year in high school. And for me, I, I just knew where I wanted to go. I wanted to kind of set a uh, set the tone about, you know, Maryland athletes and guys from the area staying home. That was really big to me because there's so much talent in that DMV area, that DC, Maryland, Virginia area was so much damn talent, but guys would leave and go to Penn state. They would go to Alabama, Florida state. Before you know it, these guys were becoming like all, you know, all, all Americans and they would go somewhere else, but you look where they're from. They're from Prince George's County, Maryland. They grew up 25 minutes from where I did. So I'm like, damn, you know, why you guys, you know, you're leaving and going to these other schools when we have the best talent. So, um, that that was it for me. I just I never even talked to or, or went on another college visit. I mean, just not even to have fun. Like, have you ever seen He Got Game with Ray Allen? Like, you didn't want to just. And, 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 but you know what? That's why I didn't want to go. That's that's exactly. I, can you imagine? I'll go down there to, to Miami, the hurricane. I mean, come on. Like, you go down there. How, how many times are you not leaving without sign, signing on the dotted line? I just I was too young for that pressure in my life. Yeah, all of a sudden, Maryland's getting a call and they're like, sorry, Corey Gables wins on this one. Right. Exactly. <laughs> then you become a stud at Maryland. And I remember, you know, every year there's that guy who's the freak in the draft. Vernon Davis one year, you were one year. It's always, there's always that one who the measurements are off the charts. You were the guy that year. At what point do you realize that you're going to be a first round pick? And once you do realize that, What's the process from that point forward? You know, um, what's funny about that is we have the freshman orientation and you're, we're in a team meeting room with everybody and the whole team. And uh, me, I'm sitting next to Dequel Jackson. I remember him, he played linebacker there for the, uh, for the Browns and then for the Colts. He played, we played on the same team in college and they were asking everybody to stand up and introduce themselves. And I literally, literally stood up and basically told everybody I'm leaving, I'm going on the first round. I mean, that was like my first conversation I had with everybody. And of course I look like a, you know, cocky little asshole, but you know, at, at the end of the day, um, I believe that. I believe that the first day that I walked on campus, I was going to be a first round draft pick. Um, and not because I thought I was better than anybody. I just, my, my work ethics were, were insane. And a guy who you just mentioned in Vernon Davis, uh, we battled every day. It was probably harder in practice because I've been him with fighting every single day between the, you know, I had to run with him on passes and he would have to block me on a run. And every day it was just, it was a fight. By the time I got to the games, it was easy. So um, I, I knew pretty early on though. So when you start obviously getting the agents coming at you, now the teams are scouting you. When do you realize, all right, this is actually a reality. This isn't just a dream anymore. I don't just believe this. This is now reality. Well, they, they give you the, the draft grades, right? So when you're in college as a junior, you get a chance to send your, your draft grades in. And I was at the point where I could have went third. They could have came back with third round. I was out. I'm like, you know what? Just more money than I'm making right now. I'm out of here, right? 
and then they ended up coming back with uh, somewhere in their first round. That's when I knew, I said, okay, well, I'm, I'm on everybody's radar. When you're projected to be a first rounder, whether it's number one pick or 20 or 21, the 21st pick, you leave. That's, you, you have an opportunity of being a, you know, going to first round, you leave, you go make a better opportunity for yourself. College will always be there. Um, that was my, you know, thought process in it. So I knew when that draft grade came back, I was out. That was, that was pretty much it. When's the first time you used lights out? When, when did that nickname actually materialize? My, my sophomore year at Frederick Douglass high school in upper Marlboro, Maryland, I knocked out four kids in one game. And right after the game, people come run up to me. I had like 20 or 25 students come run up to me and they said, man, you knocked those guys lights out. And I looked at everybody and I was like, yeah, call me lights out. And that name stuck with me. I, I didn't had no clue. I got to school on Monday and I got my book bag on. I'm walking around and everybody's like kind of walking by me saying, oh, good game lights. So everybody's calling me lights. Two weeks later, um, I went to go talk to my mom. I said, Ma, uh, everybody's called me lights out now. I got to get this tattoo with this light switch. I got a, a light switch with a hand doing that on my right forearm. I said, man, we got to get this tattoo with my right forearm. And I begged her. She said, no. She finally let me go and do it. But that was one of those things, man, that, uh, I, you know, you get that name like you're in Rucker Park, but you actually got to, like, live up to it. So when you get to the NFL, obviously it was a very different NFL back then. Now you can't touch anybody. How do you think your game would translate today versus what you were able to do 15 years ago? Oh, I, I would be playing for free. I, I mean, those, those fines that I would get, and I, was, I wasn't a dirty player by any standpoint, but I've always had the mentality that I'm going to get you on the ground by any means necessary, right? So I'm not in that split second seeing if my head is out the way or seeing if my you know, shoulder pads are too low or I'm hitting the quarterback below the knee. Like I just, I was trying to get people on the ground no matter what. Uh, and so that's where I kind of would have, I, I would have lost a battle there because some of these hits, I'm seeing, I'm like, guys, how was he supposed to move his head out the way? And his shoulders pads are, are you know, doesn't make any sense. So I was, I was just one of those players. Dude, I don't get it. Sometimes, first of all, the speed at which you guys play at, none of us normal humans can ever comprehend it. But when you're watching in slow motion, and even if you hear experienced NFL analysts and they're like, that's a dirty hit. And meanwhile, you have guys moving at each other. It's unprecedented speeds. How can you even adjust when you're already in the motion? I've never understood that. What do they expect? You, you can't, man. I mean, because the truth of the matter is there's a lot of people making these rules that never played the game. And it's ridiculously hard to play the way that they, that they want you to. Even this new taunting rule is just driving me absolutely insane. Like, I just, I don't even, I don't even comprehend how you can't show emotion in a physical football game. The reason why America, the reason why people love football is because of the emotion of it. It takes a lot for you to run your body into another human being at 20 miles an hour. It just do. And then when you're finally successful at it, you want to get up and you feel good about it. So how, how do you control your emotions? You ask me to play the, play the game the way that I love to play the game and saying, if I look at somebody too long and move my lips, or if I say something, you're going to flag me and penalize the team. When, and that, just like you said, in that split second, this guy maybe just kicked my ass for three quarters and I got one off on him in the fourth. And so how do you control, you know, how do you control your emotions at that point? You can't. Well, there was a penalty yesterday that absolutely blew my mind where there was a roughing the passer call for Kyler Murray. Oh, I see. And it was the dude, 
I, how, like, when I see something like that, I think to myself, guys of your era are probably sitting there like, what the fuck is going on? No, that, that's exactly what I was saying. And also, too, you know, I got an 11-year-old son that plays quarterback. And I'm around a bunch of, of kids that play, and, and I'm always telling them, you know, how safe football is now and how to tackle. And, and that the parents ask me all the time, hey, you, you think I should let my kid play football? And my answer is yes. Football is the greatest sport on this earth. I mean, there's nothing like it. But when you start to see things like that and they taking the fun and the joy out of, out of the game, I mean, that, that penalty against Kyler Murray, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, like, you got to – it's like a sick joke. Like, there's got to be a, some kind of joke where if you're playing in that game and you get flagged and you cost your team something, you're like, man, do I even want to – do I want to play this game? Do I, want, do I really want to go down this lane anymore? I mean, what got me playing football is the Ray Lewis's and Deion Sanders and, you know, all these guys that when they approached the field, they were emotional about what they did. They loved what they did. And so if you take, start taking that away from guys, I mean, how, how does, how's a kid, how's a 11 year old Sean Merriman looking at the game, watching that Kyler Murray hit, how do I even want to keep playing football if I know that I can't even do that. Right. So they, they it's a bigger, it's, it's a bigger thing in, in how they're treating this whole situation right now. So I want to talk to you about injuries because you had one of those careers where you're at the top of the top of the top. You're all pro three straight years. And then all of a sudden the injury bug hits you. And it just, it felt like that was it. It pretty much, once the injuries came on, yeah. they came on worse. And next thing you knew you're out of the league. Yep. When did you realize that it was over? When did you realize like, this was it, the injuries had gotten me? You know what? I've, uh, I was fine after my knee injury. The injury didn't, you know, I came back actually pretty healthy from that. But what happened was when I came back, you know, I was compensating on one side because my left, I had surgery in my left knee and I started to slowly tear my right Achilles. Now my right, the, the Achilles is what got me done. That That's what ultimately, I, I lost a burst. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't jump off the line of scrimmage and pass rush like I wanted to. Um, the knee actually didn't really bother me as much. I came back from the knee pretty strong. And uh, and once I popped my Achilles, once I tore my Achilles, that was that was it. I came back and I played uh, two years after that, but it was it was never the same. I was never able to explode off the line of scrimmage. All the things that really helped me go and have those three straight pro rolls because, you know, that was, you know, you get a guy that's running that fast at, you know, 265 pounds towards you and athletic. Um, it's pretty hard to block a guy like that. So, you know, at that point, so you can actually you can feel in your body that it's no longer there. Oh, absolutely. I, I, we used to watch film when I watched film and I would see certain guys block me who wouldn't have a chance in hell two years ago. I'm like, God, man, I, you know, so you try to mentally get by it because you still have flashes. Right. So even when I got to Buffalo, I'll have some games where I, you know, I had, you know, my, even my last game I played there, like eight or nine tackles, three TFLs. So you'll have flashes of being able to do it, but you can't do it on a consistent basis. And that's, I think, what, what got to me the most is that, I couldn't go out there week in and week out and do that same thing anymore because my body either wouldn't heal fast enough or it just didn't have enough to keep going out there and, and doing the same thing. And watching it on film, I get, I think was slowly eating me apart, especially like my last year or two. And I'm thinking like, dude, and three years ago, four years, three years ago, this guy is no way in hell he's blocking me. I'm right by this guy and I'm getting, I'm getting two or three sacks this game. And then, that you know the injuries happen and you 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 lose something and then it never really come comes back.
I had Darren Woodson on the show and he talked all about how there was a moment when he was watching film and he saw someone get blown by. He goes, who is that? And he looks closer at the film and he goes, oh shit, that's me. And he couldn't believe it. And he knew at that moment his career was over. And as an athlete, he, he was he was actually saying to me, you're always the last to know. You just, no matter how much you want to believe that it isn't over, there's a moment where your body just doesn't respond the way it used to. Yeah, it was definitely that. Um, I actually came back and I played better towards the end because Achilles, it takes, you know, up to 12 to 16 months to actually get 100%. So I felt better as it went on, but I knew that it was there was no way for me to ever turn, return to what I was before. Because once you go under that knife one time, you're never the same. I try to tell guys that. I say, look, you might come back the same. You might do some stuff better, but you're never really officially the same uh, once you go under the knife once. So I'm a lifelong Giants fan. I love Saquon. Guy's a once-in-a-generation talent. Is he ever going to be the same, in your opinion? Or is it? are we seeing the beginning of the decline, Al? Um, well, he, I think he's just in a bad situation, to be honest. Um, you know, they had no real plan for him coming in. They just wanted him to come in and be a workhorse with no real plan. Um, you know, if you look at somebody like Tennessee and what they was doing with, 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 uh, with King Henry Derek down Henry. there, you know, Derrick Henry, um, you know, they, they had a plan. They beefed up the offensive line. They brought in uh, Brown. They brought in, you know, they, they, you know, brought in Tannenhill. They, they had a whole plan, brought in, um, the new coach, um, uh, God, the guy from New England. I'm having a brain yeah, fart. Me too. I'm having one too. But you know, they brought they, and I played against them. So you know, I. But you know, they they had a whole they had a whole plan, and it just seemed to me that the Giants' plan was is to bring in this workhorse and let's use him as much as possible. And that resulted, unfortunately, in injury. But also, too, they're not doing. They're not getting any better. So, you know, it sucks because, uh, you know, we're, we are watching a generational talent, but they're just going to run him into the dirt with no plan to, to get better in the future. By the way, the guy who we were just having brain fart over was Mike Vrabel. Vrabel, I'm, yeah. Yeah, Vrabel. I, I, used, I, I hated playing against him because he was, he was always smart. He's a very smart player. What was your hardest hit that you remember? Who was, who was the hardest that you knocked out? Um... Probably, probably Priest Holmes, my, my rookie year. Um, you know, I hit him and he was knocked out. He was basically asleep for two commercial breaks. And that was, uh, you know, and that was another thing too. When I got there, I got to camp late and, and um, you know, I wasn't even fully in shape like that when I got there. And there was a lot of talk about me being this or being that. And a lot of people didn't even understand this whole lights out thing and all this other stuff. And they thought I was just college. And so, LT and Antonio Gates, none of them will call me lights until that hit and that we played them. And I remember I hit them and I was at one point, I was probably the scaredest also I've been while I've been, I've never been really scared on the, on the field until that hit. Um, I got up and I celebrated. I got to the sideline and Marty Schottenheimer had, had said, he grabbed me by the face, man. He said, great hit, but just remember that his family and friends are watching. And so I went back over and I saw that he was still out. I was like, man, this is, you know, serious. And I, I don't think he, I don't think he played again after that. Unbelievable. So that's incredible. I didn't realize, I remember that hit. I didn't realize he was completely out at that point. Yeah. Yeah. It was completely out for two commercial breaks. 
Um, and you know, at that time, I didn't know how serious it was, but I came over and looked at him and his eyes just kind of like rolled back. So it was, it was pretty scary. Do you know at impact? I mean, do you know when you've clocked somebody like that, that it's over for them? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's all spot timing. Also too, a lot of big concussions or hits happen when people aren't looking right. A lot of times when you're prepared and you're, you're kind of clenched up for it and you're ready to go and you're, you're kind of ready for impact. A lot of those concussions don't happen. If you see guys hit because they're going across the middle and they don't see a guy coming or they get hit and don't realize that their helmet is going to slap the back of the ground, the back of the helmet is going to hit the ground. And you see a lot of guys get um, concussed that way. Uh, most of my hits I was uh, prepared for because I was prepared to deliver them. But um, with that one, when I hit Priest Holmes, it was a really, a really uh, dark, like deep thump sounding hit. Um, and it was right across the top of his head. So I knew at that point it was hard. I didn't know that that hard as he was going to be out like that, but I knew it was a, it was a pretty bad hit. What happens afterwards? Is it something that you're in contact with him? Do you form a friendship? Like what happens after something like that between two football players? No, for me, it was part of the job because, you know, I could have been on the receiving end of that too. And, and if, you know, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't feel a certain type of way if a guy didn't reach out to me or, or, um, try to, you know, fix the situation. I'm like, man, this guy was playing within the 60 minutes. He was doing his job. Um, it wasn't a legal hit or anything like that. It's not like he blindsided, you know, blindsided him like when he was catching the ball and he was defenseless. Um, it was, he was running the football. He was a runner. And that was, that was practically it. But people always ask me all the time and I don't even, I don't talk about it as much because, you know, they're like, that's, you know, I obviously got a nickname like Lights Out, but it's not necessarily something you want to brag about, about a guy not being able to play again. I mean, that's, you know, wasn't a great feeling. But at the same time, I was out there doing my job and doing what I was supposed to do. So obviously we're seeing an age with athletes where they are so business savvy, savvier than they've ever been. You know, you have people like Zion and people like Mahomes who are in every commercial on the planet now. When you were coming out, I feel like the era was distinctly different because it was more be an athlete and that's where you have to focus your mind where now it's be a brand and be an athlete second. So when Lights Out became a big thing and you become a national personality, were you aware of like, I need to trademark this, I need to create merchandise, or was that still not prevalent in the athlete's vocabulary? I did it. I did it in 2005. I bought the name and rights from a company called PJ Salvage out of Irvine. Um, and I, I knew a long time ago. And, you know, it's funny now because people talk about it uh, I was just, I was 10 years ahead of my time, right? I, I was just really ahead of it. And back then, uh, I remember an article came out in the Union Tribune, the San Diego newspaper about me being like Hollywood and not caring about, you know, football. And I'm like, man, this is kind of shitty because nobody worked harder than me. I stayed before and after. I'm always constantly working and you can, you know, if you physically see me, you're like, oh, that's not a dude that just rolled out of bed and just came and said, okay, I'm going to play football. And I've worked at it constantly. But, you know, when that article came out, it was really just discredit the personality and the brand building that I started a long time ago. And I just believed in what I had. I believed that Lights Out was a, a nationally known brand with or without Sean Raymond. I just, I just happened to be the, the face of it. They kind of kick everything off. But, you know, look at what it is now with MMA and clothing line, everything else I have going. And I have had going for over a decade. Uh, but at the time, I, I caught a lot of shit. I mean, it was it was a lot of shit that I caught from the organization, from people around. And I was like, man, this is kind of, 
this kind of messed up because, you know, this, I, I built this, what, you know, I, I built this brand, I built this company and I also performed, you know, when, when healthy better than anybody on the field. One thing people don't remember is you were part of the Eli Manning, Philip Rivers trade. So you could have easily ended up in New York when you were coming out, was there a prime destination? Was there like the dream place you wanted to, to, to end up? No, initially, no, uh, until I flew to San Diego and saw that water and saw the, the, the scenery for the first time. And I was like, man, this would be really cool to play here. And I, and I said this before, you know, before the draft. Um, and at the time, I thought I was going to the Dallas Cowboys. I thought I was going to end up with Dallas instead of uh, with the Chargers because Jerry Jones and Bill Parcells told me they were going to draft me uh, when I went on a visit to Dallas. So I told my family and I told my coaches and everybody else, I said, hey, if I'm around by the 11th pick, I'm going to Dallas, right? Or, or you know, unless three three at Cleveland, which went, they went with Braylon Edwards. Um, I, you know, talked to uh, the, four, the 49ers uh, with that number one pick. They went with Alex Smith. So I, I just knew that if I fell after those couple picks and those people, I, those teams I did talk to, that I was going to end up with either Dallas or the Chargers. What was that culture like back then? Obviously, now they're the L.A. Chargers and they're playing – they're, they're renting space at SoFi, which is gorgeous, by the way. And obviously, you have Herbert now, and I had Eckler on the show recently, and it's great to see what's happening with that franchise. They're on the way up. But what was the culture like back then? Because Eli recently came out and was like, I didn't want to play there. Well, you know, the culture on the field was great. Like, we, I think now, like we just talked about the athletes being a lot more business savvy and stuff like that. We, you know, back then, we wasn't in the front office. You know, we, we control the stuff on the field. Uh, it was great because we had so many stars in the team that the, the players, we actually controlled the team. We, we ran practices and, you know, it, coaches didn't have to get on us, whatever, because you knew you were going to hear from LT or Lorenzo Neal um, or one of the vets, you know, Jamal Williams with Randall Godfrey, Donnie Edwards. These guys have been around 10 plus years. You knew if you wasn't doing what you're supposed to do, somebody was going to say something to you. And that was our culture there that we kind of um, we kind of patrolled ourselves. And, you know, now uh, I take example, like Aaron Rodgers, he comes and his first day from in training camp, he lights the organization up, right? And he, he comes to that. I mean, he went off. I thought it was one of the greatest rants in, in the history. I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it because he called out everybody in the organization. I think that's where it's different now. The money has gotten so big that players want to know what the hell is going on in the front office. You know, who are you bring, bringing in? Who am I throwing to? Who's, who am I catching the ball from? Who's what defensive coordinator, offensive coordinator you're bringing in? Who I got to take the you know calls from? And that's where the game I think is, has shifted now because you are giving out Patrick Mahomes half a billion dollar contracts, right? I mean, these guys, these quarterbacks are making 20, what Dak is making, what, 35 a year or whatever that crazy number is. I mean, guys want to know what the hell is going on now. So what was the running joke in the locker room as Philip Rivers was popping out kid after kid each year? Were you guys just like every offseason, like, here we go again? Phil's got six, seven. Like, what was it like back then? It was, you know, honestly, it was no jokes. It was almost like with Phil, Phil was like a kid himself, right? Like, it just, it, it seemed right because he had such a, like, a, a young, spirited kid, you know, kind of mentality where he was always, you know, just competing he was always just up against you always talking always and so it seems like he was could be the only guy that could handle seven eight nine kids in one household because it, it was it was just his personality and who he was 
Sean, this has been awesome, man. Congratulations on everything with Lights Out. As a huge MMA, not myself, I always love seeing these younger fighters or guys who need a spotlight really getting that spotlight. And I'm happy that you're able to, to really help them with that, man. And you were awesome when you played. I remember, I remember like yesterday, and it's just incredible to see how much of the league has shifted. And I sure missed the old league. It was a lot more fun, but at the same time, I wasn't the one taking the hits. So <laughs> awesome, man. I appreciate it. And then uh check us out, man, on, on Fubo, Fubo Sports. Um uh, October 30th. I think we go live at 5 p.m. Pacific. Awesome, man. Great stuff. Thanks for okay. a great chat, Sean. Appreciate you, man. Thank you. See you, brother. Take All care. Right. Take it easy. You too. All right, folks. That was Sean Merriman. Make sure to check out everything he's doing with his Lights Out MMA League. Really cool stuff. We're going to be back next week, but in the meantime, subscribe, rate, show us the love. On Instagram, we are at, at Endless Hustle Pod and on Twitter at Endless Double Underscore Hustle. Me personally, I'm at Arthur Cade on Twitter at It's Me Arthur Cade on Instagram. We love you. We love you. We love you. So subscribe, rate, watch, you know, do all the stuff that we need you to do. We're back next week. Great, great week of guests and some amazing guests coming up. I say that all the time, but have I disappointed? Thanks as always for listening and watching. We'll see you guys next week. Have a great weekend, Endless Hustlers.